Did you know that Exploration Radio is the official podcast partner of iMark, the International Mining and Resources Conference and Expo, taking place in Melbourne from the 29th to the 31st of October. iMark is Australia's largest mining event and is attended by more than 7,000 people who are all leaders and key players in the global mining industry. These individuals attend iMark to network, to experience the latest innovations in mining technology, and to discuss the current challenges and opportunities around mining and exploration. Both Steve and I will be attending iMark, where we will be recording interviews with key players in the mining industry straight from the expo floor. Are you interested? Why not join us? Register with the code EXPRADIO, that's E-X-P-R-A-D-I-O, at iMarkMelbourne.com to claim a 10% discount on your registration fees. Hopefully, we'll see you there. Hi, my name is Ahmad. Hi, my name is Steve. And welcome to Exploration Radio, a podcast focusing on the past, present, and the future of exploration. Exploration Radio is proudly sponsored by the AIG, the Australian Institute of Geoscientists. This sponsorship allows us to continue producing the content for AIG members and our wider listeners in Australia and globally. And remember, if you're an AIG member, then you get to claim continued professional development or CPD hours for listening to this episode. Now let's get on with the show. So welcome to Exploration Radio. Our guests today are Marcus Lake from Olympus and Michelle Carey from Imdex. Imdex and Olympus are service providers driving the development and the use of real-time decision-making in exploration and mining. Everything from portable XRFs to the lab at the rig. You know both of these companies, you know them well. They're actually everywhere and we'll let Marcus and Michelle explain where they're everywhere. Can you introduce yourselves? Let's start with you, Marcus. Tell us who you are and tell our listeners a little bit about your background. Hi there, I'm Marcus Lake. I've currently been with Olympus for about uh, nine years. Previous to that, we were uh, Innovex Systems, some people might recall that. Previous to that, we were a distributor called JBS Technologies. So been in the XRF world since the start of my 12th year. Previous to that, I was in the ag business. I've had real-time honor mine in 1992 when I worked in uh, Marvel Lock for Osdrill wow. as a shot firer. So I was on shot crews back in the old days when gold was, uh, I don't know, a couple hundred dollars. Yep, back in the good days of the gold industry. Well, the bad old days or the good old days, however you look yeah, at them, so. Ahmed. So that's sort of my basic background. And Marcus, you and I must have first met each other in Zambia, what's that, nine years ago? It was a long time ago. I was thinking about that this afternoon before we came in, thinking how long I've known Michelle for. A long time when you joined IO. Yeah, that's right. So that's 10 years ago last year. There you go. So oh, it's wow. been a while. And Michelle, do you want to give us a little bit of your background? As yeah, well? sure. So I guess these days uh, I'm the head of product development for Imdex and I'll talk a little bit more about what Imdex do and why we're everywhere in a moment. But before that, I spent a long time in the exploration industry working for companies like Western Mining in particular and BHP as well. All sorts of roles, but by technical background, and I'm sure this will come out as we talk today, I'm a geochemist. So I guess going back to Imdex, why do you know us? Well, you probably know us as Reflex or AMC. Our green buckets of mud are on pretty much every drill rig you've ever visited. And our survey tools and our orientation tools are on 80% of the world's drill rigs. So that's our history, I guess. But these days, we're very much about real-time data, trying to give you that sort of information and more in real time. And we'll be talking about that more today. Cool. So what do Olympus do 
in terms of their mining or exploration parts? Of so Olympus uh, is a global supplier of in, in, within our industry of uh, field portable X-ray fluorescence and X-ray diffraction. Uh, I've also got a pretty big uh, non-destructive testing instrumentation division. Apart from that, people know Olympus for their microscopes within mining, but mainly Olympus is a medical company, so our industrial division is quite small. Just so people know the scale of this, which I found fascinating, portable XRF units, so I guess the Delta, which is the units that's most widespread, how many thousands of those have you guys sold globally? I was doing the numbers again this afternoon, and uh, over the 11 years that we've been selling these, I mean, there'd be thousands if you do the multiples on it. A lot of them might be sitting in the cupboard now, might be obsolete. I heard some stories Marcus yesterday with a customer, <laughs> uh, some very old deltas out there that people are still getting fixed and some projects uh, in, the, in the Pacific Islands. They're there, they're in cupboards. Well, I think it's a great thing to think yeah. about for today, right? There have, there's been thousands of these things sold, probably tens of thousands, and they do sit in people's cupboards and they have been for the last five to ten years. So real-time data has been with us for a long time. We don't always use it. I mean, that's one of the things we're going to get into. The definition of real-time data is broader than portable XRF, but portable XRF is probably the one that everybody who's listening understands. So who would like to give me a definition of real-time data and give me some examples, just some flavours? I think I have to defer to Michelle on this because we provide the equipment that uh, does the real-time data. We provide the, the tools and companies like Index take that data. And- well played there, Marcus. Yeah, well that was a smooth handball. <laughs> so I get caught on the semantics of this all the time and what real time means. And what I always say is that it means it allows a geologist to make the decision they need to make in real time. So it doesn't mean necessarily you have the data available right away. It means if you're calling end of hole, then you have the data ready to make a call end of hole. It means if your survey data means your hole's going off track, You know that in real time, so you can tell a driller to do something about it. So real time for a geologist usually is within half an hour, and a lot of the time it just means within a day, but it means within the time you need to make the choice. So if I read that correctly, you're saying that the the right definition or the best used definition would be where we remove the lag effect in decision-making. Correct. That's exactly right. Don't wait for a laboratory for three months. Make a choice within a day. That's real time. So real-time decision-making implies that the person on the rig is making the decision. No, it doesn't really. It means that wherever you are, you've got the data available to make the decision. Comms these days means that that person might be sitting in an office, but that person needs to have the data. Mm -hmm. That person needs to have quality control in place so they can trust the data, but there's no reason they can't make the decision. So there's obviously a difference between data and interpretation and then insights and things that you get out of it. So when we say real-time data, do we account for the time lag that will be associated with interpretation or subsequent, like, you know, the actual working with the data that you might have to do? There's a real spectrum in the answer to that, and there's a real spectrum in the way you can deal with it. A lot of the things we try to do is take away all the hard and pointless bits of dealing with that data so that at a minimum all you have to do is do the true interpretation. An example would be with structural data, don't smoosh data in Excel spreadsheets, Mm -hmm. but do look at it in a 3D package. So that's one answer. Another answer is, uh, you know, do we provide analytics rather than data? That's probably a bigger question to a 
yeah. investigate. Yeah. Because I think, I, I guess that's a good way to put it, that we say real-time data, but in some ways we might actually be saying real-time analytics. Sometimes, right? And I think that that comes down to what geologists can handle, you know? Mm-hmm. Can they handle it if you give it a bunch of raw data to them in the field? Do they need you to provide some sort of helping hand where you give them an analytics product they still make the decision, but they do it off the back of that. Yeah, that's right. Personally, I think there's always been a difference in the person on the rig or in the field that's closest to the machinery. They probably want real-time data, but management or someone that's one order away will probably want analytics. They'll want real-time analytics. Yeah, I'm not sure that it's quite that straightforward. I think about a geologist sitting at the rig, they might still want real-time analytics to help them log. Oh, true. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's a good but point. But I think it depends on the sorts of workflows that people and companies set up. And I think there's almost a, a philosophy point here. There are companies who strongly believe that geologists should be on rigs making decisions and others that think that they should be in the office. I don't think either one's necessarily right or wrong. You've just got to design a workflow that copes with it. Because I think if you look at, say, the oil industry, the people that interpret the data as well as people that make the decisions are relatively in the same geographical space. Yeah, I mean, well, they sit in control centers, NASA style. I think that's, that's cool, right? Yeah, that's right. So there's a real, um, I'm going to say, even machismo um, around being in the field. And that's one of the issues that we'll have to get into today, which is um, a fundamental dogma around whether you should be field-based or, or in some corporate office. I always say that geologists are people who want to be sitting around campfires eating spam, not dudes sitting in front of a computer. It's not the image that we want for ourselves, but that might be one of the things that has to change. So let's talk about some examples, some successful examples from both of you. So examples where companies have had good practice in portable XRF or uh, good practice in, in using gamma logging, or you go for it. Just tell me some examples that you know of, that if you can... There was some uh, great stuff done in the early days when we started, or I started. These things weren't accepted in gold. I mean, in exploration, they, they're not very good for gold, but they're very good for pathfinders. There's some great stuff done in West Africa by a company I, I could mention uh, on uh, lithogeochemistry work, uh, soils work, and looking at pathfinders and gold. And these companies in the beginning, 10 years ago, people were like, oh, it doesn't do gold. It's rubbish for gold. And now, I mean, the gold companies are, there aren't, gold exploration companies are our number one buyer of this product, probably the number one rental for Index. Do you care to comment why? Why do you think gold companies are ahead of others in this space? Well, gold's always pretty popular. Um, uh, It is 50% of our industry still. So that's a big chunk of it, right? Yeah. And it was these geologists who really thought outside the box and said, okay, it doesn't do gold in situ very well, but... We can do all the other elements, all the pathfinders, arsenic, zinc, et cetera, et cetera. And it does all of that. And these geochemists said, okay, let's give it a go. Let's try this, let's try this and that. Probably the other factor too is if you've got nickel sulfides, all geologists think they can predict nickel sulfide grade to within two decimal places. Gold's harder. Yep. Right? It's I think, harder. Yeah, I think this is a theme that often comes up when we talk to people that gold companies tend to be the ones that take the lead in a lot of these. And maybe it's A, that they have accepted that what their limitations are, technical limitations. Maybe the other one is that there's more competition, there's more gold people out there, so you have to try to do something. But it's always an interesting point. Every time we talk about technologies, it seems to be that gold companies lead the way in some way. I mean, I, I look at it like, you know, this is offensive maybe, 
the gold companies require <laughs> you to understand geology. And what I mean by that is the assay, the rocks can lie. The assay itself is a huge component of the exploration process, whereas that's not the case with something that has a tangible, uh, something like nickel sulfides, for example. Yeah, true. So what about poor examples? I'll start with companies that have replaced laboratory analysis with portable XRF or companies that use in resource modeling, for example. In my experience, uh, the companies that we've been working with, a lot of them have looked at trying to replace laboratory assay, but then they've realized they still have to go back to that for verification for draw compliance, 43101 and all of that compliance side of the business. So the ones that are using it are using it in tandem. They're using field portable XRF and they're going back to the lab to check. And basically they're just, they're not sending rubbish back to the labs, saving a lot of money. So, I mean, that's a theme that my team and I have always used, you know, over the past few years. Companies are saving money by using this technology and, and it works. It's, it's been proven. So one of the stories that we've told on this podcast is the story of the Craystar, which is, you know, was the equivalent of a portable rig back in its time, you know, a rig in real time that night, which, you know, by Michelle's definition is, I think, pretty close to the, to the game of real-time analysis. And they were able to cover huge ground and do very effective exploration really quickly. So there has been a precedent for real-time geochemical analysis, I think, for some time. What about other forms of real-time analysis? Yeah, so I was actually, I mean, back to the, it's often gold companies. An area where it's iron ore companies is the use of things like gamma and other petrophysical methods. That's true, yeah. Right? Those guys, it's almost endemic now to their workflow to collect gamma on every hole to get that data into their systems in real time and to use it to you know they're actually starting to do things like call end of hole based oh, yeah. on on gamma results because they figured out the the cost saving that that represents to them so actually in this real time space i suspect that the iron ore industry and that uh, resource delineation i guess rather mm-hmm. than truly greenfields or brownfields exploration yeah. very much are, are leaders in this space and I think it goes back to the point you made at the start that maybe the perception in the industry is that real-time data has to be geochemical data, but in fact, it doesn't. In the case of iron ore, they're using different data sets to make that decision. You know, if we qualify real-time data being the mechanism for you to make better decisions, then in iron ore, they're actually using different types of data sets. And it's just a proxy thing, right? What do they need to know? They need to know what the rocks are. They don't need geochemistry to do that. I mean, interestingly, if you look at what some of those guys are doing, they are now trying to figure out ways to do real-time assay as well. Mm-hmm. So there is a couple of technologies out there, SODIN and their PGNNA techniques, for example. So do you think we're a little bit too hung up on the fact that real-time data has to be geochemical data? Yeah, absolutely. I think you just think about, uh, so petroleum have got a great concept. They call it answer products. Mm-hmm. And that's the way they always talk about this stuff. It's not about how you get the data. It's what's the data that you want. You okay. know, you know, what do you want to know? In their case, they want to know about porosity and permeability. How do you get that? In our case, it's I want to know what the rock is. I want to know how hard the rock is. How do you do it? Mm-hmm. Figure out the most cost-effective, easiest to put it in your workflow way. Do that. Yeah, because I always think that, you know, the old adage that grade is always king. Like if you remove that and if you talk to a metallurgist, they might say hardness is the king or they might say what liberation factors might be king. So then will we not rely on geochemical data that much if we change the the answer that we were trying to see? Yeah, absolutely. There's lots of examples where you can do it other ways. Or as I said, you can use a proxy for geochemistry because it's easier than getting the geochemistry itself. So some of this 
technology development, is some of it borrowed from other industries or is it really commissioned from ground up? Oh, yeah. So the petroleum industry is the obvious one. There's not much that we try to do that petroleum hasn't tried to do. Our problems generally is we have to be both smaller and cheaper. And if you're doing technology development, you usually try and shoot for only one of those, not both at the same time. Well, with our machines, obviously we're bound by the realms of physics. They, they've been getting better and better every year. There's like a step change probably every two years as computers get faster and things get smaller and faster. And You mean step change in detection limits? Yes, step change in, yep. in detection limits. But I mean, we're at sort of, you know, that across the base metal range, you know, one to two ppm sort of level. I mean, it's only going to get faster as computers get faster. But again, we can't change the laws of physics. So there is a limitation to what this technology that I see is going to go forward. And as you sort of mentioned here, you know, what are other technologies moving towards? And obviously, as a company, we, we, we're looking to them. But we haven't really seen all that much out there as yet. There's a couple of things coming on, like Libs, and which we see is not quite ready yet for ge- Geochem. There's probably a couple other things out there that we haven't seen. We're always looking. I know companies like Index are always looking as well, and other companies. You know, we also mentioned who knows what the military is doing, who knows what they're doing in these military research places because we don't have, and none of us have access to that. So don't know what's out there, but we are bound by... The, Laws the, of physics. Yeah, the, the, the real world. So you guys have your own internal R&D capabilities. Do you deal with open innovation in any way with other groups that are developing technologies elsewhere in the world? Yeah, so you know, both of us have been involved in previous CRCs. The DET CRC is something we were, both groups were part of. We're both part of the new Minix CRC. You know, there's a couple of others that we're involved in. We talk a lot about whether we're also part of hackathons and stuff like that. I'm going to be honest, we're very defensive of our IP. It's hard for us to get involved yeah. like with things like hackathons, but you know, you've got to be open. There's no way you come up with all the good ideas yourself. So do you think in your companies your your business case is a little bit affected by the fact that you are a little bit too protective? It can be that way. We're really lucky. That flippant stat I gave you at the start about we're on 80% of the world's rigs, mm-hmm. it means that we're in the reasonably fortunate situation that people will quite often come to us and say, hey, I've got a good idea, but I've figured out I can't get it into the marketplace. Ah, yep. Will you help me? I think uh, big companies, that's how they operate. We're fairly similar. You know, I think the way of the future, we're probably talking about a little bit further down this discussion is, uh, I mean, automation is the way it's going to go. The DTCRC that we worked with Index on, you know, I still get always asked at conferences and when I'm out and about, about, you know, when's it going to be automated? We don't know. Michelle's not allowed to tell us. Uh, she, she might tell us after this when the mics are turned off <laughs> uh, or later on because we always get asked that. It, it's there. We've trialled it together, uh, but it needs to be a product. We both agree that it's not a market yet. It's not big enough yet. But, you know, if you build it, they will come type of thing. It will come, but when, we don't know. It's going to be expensive to bring to market. It's going to be expensive for customers to use initially. People don't want to spend that money. You know, we all, we all know that. People trying to save money everywhere. Yeah, uh, It's yeah. going to happen. The only reason I ask that is, I guess, like I interpret the way like a lot of companies work is that they obviously are product focused. And I understand like, you know, you obviously have to be financially viable. To so make you have, money. Yeah, you have to make a, a product and you have to sell it. 
I guess the other way to do it would be that you could move past products where you're trying to make like a cultural change in how people work. And maybe the way to do that would be like platforms. Like YouTube is a platform, but it makes absolutely no content. It's all provided by users. So there could be like, you know, space in mining where people could make a platform where you allow people to pitch in their IP, call it whatever you want. They kind of make the product or they put their product in and then you're just the facilitator of that in some way. Do you think that's like something that could work in this space? I think the problem for both of our companies is the cost of development. There's a lot of good ideas out there that come through our desks and the cost of development of that product. And the first question we always get asked is, sounds like a great product. How many we could sell? Yeah. How many do you think we could sell? Um, Which Michelle and I probably get asked all the time. And that's the big issue. And that's why the companies are hesitant, I think, too. The ideas do come through our desks, but they're hesitant and there's a, block because how many are we going to sell and like again you build it they will come but the executives want to know how many are going to sell because it's interesting like you say that because we interviewed bruce from als and his concept was the same that they have no shortage of ideas they actually have shortage of saleable products that will actually allow them to move forward so you know they develop things so there's the push from them but there's absolutely no pull from the industry to actually then get things going and I think it's, it's we always, or we classify things by how disruptive we think they're going to be when we yeah. release them. And it's it's the the more disruptive, obviously, the, the, the longer that time frame is going to be. Therefore, the more you have to have your brave boots on, right? Yep. Something like Lab at Rig, you know that if you do it, it's going to take probably 10 years, right? The industry mm-hmm. adoption numbers on technology for the mining industry are 10 years is an optimistic estimate on how long it takes us to actually adopt something. I think it's very optimistic. Right. And so it's really, you've got to be a certain size company and have your brave boots on to even think about it. So one of the things I think about real-time analysis is that it advantages it provides improved decision-making as opposed to necessarily cost reduction. And of course, everybody's driven by cost reduction rather than improved decision-making. And real-time definitely is about improved decision-making. So I guess one of the things that concerns me is that we have to change the way the industry views its poor decision-making first. Yeah, it's really tough, right? When we were looking at the Labyrinth technology to take it out of the DET, one of the things we did was we got Deloitte to do a bunch of financial modelling for us to, to illustrate this sort of thing, to, to try and figure out what the value was that we were introducing. Because what we mostly get is people going, well, what's the cost per sample going to be and how many samples can I stop sending to the lab? And what we use Deloitte to do is to show us, all right, you get a bit of a cost saving by not sending samples to the lab. Where's the compelling value proposition? Drilling less meters, drilling less holes, and even more esoterically and more challenging to try and explain is improving your probability of success and your cost per discovery to say there's an opportunity cost thing here. If you're not drilling meters on this project because you've realized it's a dud, you can go and drill those same meters on another project which actually is inherently better or you can churn through projects faster. So a key question I would have is from my perspective, the industry would counter that by it's not really interested in saving drill holes. It seems ridiculous to say that because that's clearly cost, 
but there but is a true. dogma. No, there no. is a dogma out there. I always say drill the same meters but in better places, right? A little bit because drillers are our customers too and I don't want to get in trouble. But <laughs> you're spot on that geologists don't want to hear that we're going to drill less meters either. So I always say drill the same meters but in better places. There's a really uncomfortable concept that the drill rig is the, the truth The meter. truth machine. So as a result, you can't cut the meters. And that's why we have this strange conversation about wouldn't you want to know more about what comes out in the ground? Whereas I sense that people would rather put that money into drilling another hole rather than doing better than the hole they're already on. But, but that's okay, right? Isn't that the same thing? Isn't it about finishing or whilst you're drilling that hole, maybe finishing it earlier or increasing your understanding about it enough to drill the second hole in a different place? I get that that's a more complex argument, but I think it is about drilling the same number of holes but better. I do think that you know, most geologists, how many geologists do you know who are really brave enough to say, I've drilled this hole and I really know I can't drill the next one? I don't think we make that decision very often, even when based on current information we know that's the case. I, I, oh, yeah, I, I agree with that completely. <laughs> I think that's part of the issue. The probability of finding something is so low and we're, we're so poor at what we do in general that the confidence level to call a hole early based on data or to not drill another hole is just missing as a result because there's an uncomfortable uncertainty associated with how we're doing. You know you're not really good enough. And so what you guys are doing is providing better tools to make better decisions, but we're still living in the world of low probabilities and and being relatively poor at what we do. And they provide that gets us out of accountability as well, right? Nobody expects us to be able to make the right call, so nobody judges us when we make the wrong call. So it's okay to make the wrong call. Yeah, we're definitely That's not a, held accountable. Yeah, and I think it goes back to maybe a more fundamental point that we're not very good at evaluating work at the start of the process. You know, we always do it at the end, like the cost of samples, the cost of drilling, all of these things. But what's the cost of someone good coming up with drill holes as opposed to someone bad or what's a good project versus a bad project at the start. I, I just don't think we have Can the ability. Can you calculate the cost of putting that. a bad hole yeah. in a thousand meters? Yeah, no, 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 exactly, right? So the, it's the calculation on cost is done on the back end. You know, like you said, we don't have a very robust way of understanding opportunity cost of working on a bad project for three years as opposed to a good project for three years. We don't really have a metric. We have this conversation at what seems like it should be the most simple level as well around, you know, survey data, geologists being able to look at the data and the survey data in real time so they can go, oi, mate, we're not actually going to hit the target. What are we going to do about it? And geologists don't even necessarily have the confidence to have that conversation with a driller, right? It's like, what's going on here? We're not going to hit the target. Let's stop the hole. Let's do something about the hole. So we can't even have... We can't even consistently have that conversation, let alone that much more sophisticated one about the geology we're drilling through. One of the things that is a general societal change is the incoming of more technology and let's call it big data, but a proliferation in, in data. And the first line of attack is surely more data is beneficial for decision making, but we're all flooded by more data. Or the alternative is actually that we're struggling to filter data. And so between both of you, both companies, and in fact, all real-time decision-making tools can only improve our capability to make decisions. But our industry may not be ready for this. We're kind of famous for being a bit of a laggard with technology in the first place. And if anything, we're getting worse rather than better. And so we're now to be flooded by 
just enormous volumes of information. So are we prepared for change? Change is coming no matter what we do, Steve. Uh, it's here, it's now. Obviously, people of our three generations have seen that change. Ahmed probably was been part of it, in it, yeah. being a touch younger. Um, but even then, I find like things like you know somewhat interesting that in architecture, CAD came in in like the late seventies, and in mining, WMC still used to have drafts people. Yeah, still like I the started, late nineties. Totally. Yeah, but you know, the coloring in skills that I had. Um, oh yeah, you can't a, you can't I mean, put a price on that. That's right. But it, it's the concept that we we do adopt technology. It seems to be a lot slower than a lot of in other the mining people. industry. But I've seen that right when people didn't like it, labs didn't like portable XRF, and now it's you know accepted and adopted. It's it's proven. Yeah, I think the mining business is slow, but. The change seems everywhere in whatever industry you look at. It seems to be coming so quickly and so full on. And Steve, you're talking about the overloading of data in all areas, not only just work and mining and, you know, media and social media and all this other stuff. It's there and how you filter it. I mean, that's going to be the trick, right? How you filter it and the systems that people produce and companies produce and to get that use of that data because there is so much of it and some of it's rubbish right let's face it not all of it's good data not all data is good data depending what you're doing in you know in, in all fields so i think the change is here it's now and this industry is going to have to change otherwise it will be changed it's a big shift though right i mean most people even if they do multi-element data at a lab they still don't look at it you know you do ALS, right? What's their suite called? ME41? Yeah, 41 yeah. elements? No one looks at 41 mm. elements. I was a geochem I mean, if you consultant. look at 10% really well, yeah. I'd be surprised. I'd be massively surprised. And when we watch people trying to adopt our technologies, probably one of the biggest areas of pushback is that they don't know what to do. But I think the challenge we've got is how do you, how do you respond to that? There's a slippery slope here between giving them analytics to help and replacing with analytics. And we're in real danger, as Marcus just said, of you know stepping out of the ball game so that we get replaced by analytics rather than owning the conversation, owning the transition and saying, I want analytics to help. And I think that's one of the things we really need as an industry to get our head around. So do you think there's a component there where the skills have to obviously evolve as, as time goes on? Otherwise, we are going to be in the case where we're doing things that are not going to be very good at Look, all. Absolutely. I mean, we, as geoscientists, we're the people who understand geological processes. So we should be the ones who do this. Mm -hmm. But if we don't develop enough data capability, if we go, oh, that's not what we like to do, that's not why I became a geologist in the first place, then we'll get replaced. Yeah, and I guess this goes back to the point, Steve, you made, like, you know, yeah. If I dumb it really down, a lot of your value would have been that you've seen a lot of things. You've been to a lot of rocks, you know, you've been to a lot of deposits, et cetera, et cetera. But if the skills transition to another point where you're going to be valued by how you can absorb and interpret different data sets in real time, then maybe your skill will not be as valued anymore. I don't know. I, I, would, I would say two things to that. One is that, you know, absolutely, you, would, you should think of analytics as codifying people like Steve's brain so that 
We don't have to have millions of Steve clones. But I think it's also about that even even Steve doesn't have superpowers. He can't he can't actually analyze a rock in real time. So he's using visual observations. That's right. Yep. He thinks what? he has superpowers. Yeah. It's yeah, different. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, would you trust Steve if Steve was your doctor and and he was going to use just his visual observations, would you think that was okay? Would you rather that he use an MRI or some sort of technique to back up his his excellent yeah, exactly. judgment and knowledge. So I think even for the the more elite of our geoscience community, there's still an argument that we could all do with a bit of superpower help. Yeah, no, no, that's right. And I think I guess the frustration I have is that we never really have that discussion is how do we adopt domain expertise into a more tangible way of handling data currently. Yeah, so that's a lot. I mean, this is going to sound really producty, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's a little bit what iogas is supposed to be, right? We kind of recognised way back when that geochemistry as a function is kind of dying, right? There's only so many of us. We're very special. But what you need is for a geologist to be able to act like they're a geochemist. And a lot of what iogas tries to do is make geochemistry digestible for a geologist, not to replace a geologist, or but to make them able to do geochemistry, yeah, right? So I, I really like the way you uh, describe that we have to take control of the process, because that's what actually concerns me from looking at other industries, is where analytics is replaces an industry, but prematurely. So I think that we could be honest here and say that analytics will replace geoscience, but the time frame that is an unknown. But there's a transition period here, and if we don't take control of this process, cost will dictate how someone judges us. So on a given day, someone suggests they can do my job using something along AI nearly every day. And it's just frankly embarrassing and that sounds incredibly arrogant but it's it's not actually meant to be arrogant it's like think what we can do the honesty about what we can and can't do right now is not there in the industry the industry doesn't realize either the positives or the negatives of what some data techniques can actually do and i think too probably a more honest question to ask and where the answer gets dicier is you've got a geologist sitting on a rig covered in dust just getting their paycheck. Can analytics do a better job than them right now and certainly a cheaper job? That's a harder thing to know the right answer to. So I want to talk about point source technologies, like one part of the value chain versus entire workflows. One of the things that's come up a number of times in this podcast is really that perhaps we need woe-to-go whole workflow changes. And some of these technologies almost demand big changes in workflow. And that's really hard to do. And the, as a point source, you can see the value from point source to point source, replace one technology with another. Do you guys consider the concept when you're developing a product about the entire value chain? We, When we sell a product, we sit down and do initial training to just give the initial tools to the geologists and geoscientists and fieldies that we're training just to understand what they're looking at. And... We're obviously of the opinion and hope that once we've given the geos those tools, they go away. They work out what workflow is going to work for them because the workflow that's going to work for them might not work for you or our meds company. It's a different situation. You're in a different environment. Someone's doing soil, someone's drilling, someone's doing diamond core, et cetera, et cetera. So 
a good customer for probably both of us is someone we don't hear from. I mean, we we only ever hear from someone that's a You're problem. not supposed to admit to that, <laughs> I mean, We love talking to people. Um, yeah, we love talking to people, but a good customer, you know, once the penny drops and the tools that we've given them, it's working. The initial stages, the ramp up for six months, probably a lot of questions, a lot of emails, phone calls, and then they go, okay, this is how it works. And then we hear from them when they want to buy a new product or something's happened with the product or something like that. So, so, so uh, do you think with that approach, are you at the risk of selling cars to people that don't know how to drive? It's a little bit like that. Uh, you know, um, when... That's why they end up in cupboards. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, there is. But, you know, you're not going to learn to drive a car for me sitting around this table saying, hop in the car, put your key in, start driving. You've got to drive the car to learn how to drive a car. That's how we all learn. And that's I think that's very similar for Olympus's products. Mm-hmm. Imdex's products, the software products are probably a little more complicated. It's probably fairly similar. You've got to start driving it. Yeah, I think and for start us. start using it and not be scared of it. You know, yeah, like yeah. when we all started driving, we're all scared of driving, right? So interestingly, one of our big differences is we rent our stuff. So if it gets put in a cupboard, then actually it doesn't get put in a cupboard. It gets sent back to us. So we, we don't actually oh, yeah. have quite the same uh, luxury. So I was going to describe what we do um, with structural data because I think it's a really good example okay. of this. We used to just orient drill core. We make a lot of money out of it for the record, but it's just literally putting a dot on a piece of core, very much a point solution, right? And we went, well, that's not great. What is a real end-to-end solution? What's the geologist doing here? I was like, okay, they want accurate structural data, right? So we said, oh, to do that, what we need is a core orientation tool. We need a thing that collects structural data. We need our survey tools. We need to smoosh it all together in the cloud. And we want to put it in a 3D environment like sequence so that the geologist can actually use that data in real time. So we built that, right? Mm-hmm. We said, okay, we're going to solve what we think the actual problem here is. So that is very much the way we think about things now is what's the problem? How do we solve it with a solution? The one thing I would say, though, is that people don't like the lock-in that that sometimes implies, right? People go to us, well, that's all very well, but you've done that so I can't use someone else's survey tool. People don't like yeah. it, right? It's so do you have better success in selling the end-to-end solution or? The point solution. It's much, it's, really? it's hard. Wow. It's a really okay. hard sell for people. They, f- It's because I think it's a of the change to workflow that a solution represents. Swapping in and out point solutions easy, going the way I collect structural data is rubbish, I'm going to do it better, hard. Because, I mean, I guess we've had this discussion on this podcast before where one of the reasons why we came up with why we are such a laggard in adopting is because we do get points or solutions. And if I put my hat as someone working in the industry, I realistically don't have the time to take all these points or solutions and put them together in a workflow. I'm here to tell you it doesn't help as much as you think when we do it the other way. Wow. Okay. So that's from a business perspective, though. Don't you think that replacing whole value chain whole workflows would be helpful oh, to the industry? I think it should be. I mean, just for the record, one of the reasons is because there's an experience expensive way to also replace the whole value change, which is to use uh, external consultants to go and do that for you. Yeah, you you always outsource the patchwork that you need done. This is a mess. I'm giving it to those guys. Well, I mean, I I think like, you know, even that solution is a suboptimal solution, I think, really. You know, structural data is a great one to think about. I don't know how many of you have thought about this, but do you know how how many people are collecting structural data because Jork says they have to, rather than to really understand their ore body? You know, that makes it really hard. Yeah. 
And yeah. even, I mean, I think, Marcus, you made the point earlier that one of the fascinating things that I think about the whole webcam analysis and portable XRF is that if you remove the requirement of Jork, would you have better adoption of portable XRF results being reported? Do people not wholly use portable XRF because it's a compliance issue or that they actually do think that it's a like a much better outcome? Because of the Jork and 43.1 compliance, I mean, there's a couple of companies out there who have done Jork resources on XRF. They haven't released their data yet. Uh, we've seen it. We're hoping to get our hands on it. I mean, it's a lot of work. That's the thing. It's the amount of work that's involved that's to, true, yeah. you've, you've to, to define the resource by using this equipment. It's easier just to comply with the requirements and do it like the book says. And you have to replace the lab, right? It's not about that. That's very much a solution rather than point source as well. If you chose to use portable XRF to do your resource, it wouldn't just be buying a gun, right? You'd have to start that's acting fine. like a lab in terms of the QA, QC protocols, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's fine. But there's always a trade-off. You know, like if you did portable XRF, you know, you might do a hundred samples for every one sample that you could send out if you set up the workflow right. So then, wouldn't you're data... getting caught on the same valley prop? You're talking about yeah. samples sent to the lab. Yeah, see, exactly. you've been sucked in. Yeah, that's right. But I mean, like you know, like the the point being that if you make the acquisition part cheaper and the immediate result cheaper, then wouldn't data density outweigh the fact that you could collect far more data? So from a joke point of view, wouldn't you have more data density to figure out what you're looking at? I think if you look at the cost of assay versus drilling, yeah. really, it's not. Yeah, that's it, true. It's still not quite the value. I mean, I think, well, I know that the value props all that real-time decision-making. That's so much more compelling than, than these ideas of replacing labs, right? Yeah, it, okay. it really is. Sure, those are additional benefits, but if you can make better choices, so much more compelling. So this identifies an issue, which is you're putting more reliance on skills uh, of the person, not necessarily on the rig, but the person definitely involved in interpretation. Are we there? And that's a rhetorical question. Uh, what do, <laughs> what's what, the actual question? Say, right, so moving on to the actual question. What do we need to do to upskill our industry? Our universities are under stress. Our industry, our large majors are not necessarily equipped anymore. How are we going to do this? That's a very tough question. <laughs> I've, I've got that written here in my notes, actually. Tough question. Uh, <laughs> tough question. Make Michelle question answer mark, it. Question mark. So uh, I mean, let's just move on then I mean, to the uh, next uh, one. I mean, the comment I'd make is that as the non-geoscientist this table, I mean, obviously, with my rudimentary geology, I think even with AI and what's happening with data and technology in the whole, the whole world, geology is so interpretive I think there's always going to be a need for geologists, geoscientists, geochemists to actually look at what that algorithm has spat out or what that system, computer system, whatever it might, might come in 10, 20, 30 years when none of us are working or here anymore. I think it's still going to be a requirement to have a person say, yes, tick. The algorithm's right, the AI is right, green light proceed. That's my opinion as a non-geoscientist. You guys might have other opinions. That's what sort of way you're heading. I don't know. That's why a tough question. As far as the skill level goes, let's just hope the young kids start studying geology and universities bring in all these cool things that we, we, we develop and Imdex develop and a whole other companies develop and hopefully they train them on that stuff and they come in this business instead of doing media or whatever else they're doing now, nowadays and come in and 
start finding some mineral you sound resources. Very old, Marcus. All of a sudden, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think universities probably have to change, but I suspect that cultural shift in companies, probably the bigger ones, mostly to to go back to a culture where we mentor people to develop their necessary skills is a big part of this. It doesn't matter whether it's new techniques or just old basics done well. If we're not training people to do their job properly, and this probably comes back to that accountability piece a bit as well, Mm -hmm. if we were held accountable, then by God, we'd train to be able to do our jobs properly. Yeah, that's right. You know, we do a bunch of stuff with, you know, really simple analytics to help people do quality checks on their data. We do as much as we can, but none of that will replace people being given the appropriate training and mentoring to actually do it. While we were like setting up this episode, Steve and I kind of had this discussion where there is a bit of a blame game where like companies say that, well, service providers should be the one that should be setting up this ecosystem or platform to have this upskilling. But then, you know, companies don't want to take the onus to do it. And universities, I think, are kind of falling behind in that because the nature of, I think, education is going to change. For the record, we take training pretty seriously and are more than happy to step up and give the industry as much as it wants, but it's got to want it. I think that's yeah. why I think it's a cultural piece as much as anything else. You've got to have companies coming to you and saying, oh, I need help. I need to understand how to do this, right? And I'm not sure that that, that bit is, is missing. No, right? that's right. And no I one's g- coming to us and saying they need help. And I gave this example before, I forget in some other episode, where I read about the fact that when Disney started as a movie studio, they used to run classes to teach the animators on how to animate animals in 3d so because all the people that they had were just making stills so they used to run these full-on classes and used to be called a proper university class and i don't think companies in our industry have kind of caught on the fact that there has to be that commitment from their end i think the collaborative stuff that we do there's one coming up in london vancouver index and olympus we've collaborated for a long time together Uh, who was the other collaborator on that we do these collaborative sessions and we bring in geoscientists who talk about what they're doing and it develops ideas. Those collaborative sessions definitely help our users for all our products. I guess some more collaboration at the university level, bringing that seminar type of thing into it would probably help these students And because it, it is a definite lack of mentorship across a lot of businesses now because everyone's too busy making money, mm-hmm. right, instead of mentoring people. And that collaboration has helped our businesses for sure achieve what we've achieved because we've turned around to our executives and said, look, we like what Index does. They've said they like what we do. Let's join together. Let's do it together, right, and help each other out. And we've, I think we've had great success by doing that. There's probably not enough of that going on in all businesses. I'm mining specifically because everyone's siloed doing their job, right? Yeah, so yeah, that collaboration right. really helps a lot of our users i think and what this is what i'm doing you know and people go oh hang on i can do that too and then i can do it better mm-hmm. or tweak it so as service providers do you see you know when you can see the industry trending in a certain way and you want to drive change and you've talked about disruption and you want to build a business case because that's what you the companies you work for can you just build a business case without laying down a platform for thought change. I look at this problem and think our industry is lagged. Someone's got to do some hard yards on the ground floor here in order to build the business case. It's not going to be built on technology alone. 
No, we don't. We, we absolutely openly accept if we're introducing a disruptive technology, then part of what we would call our marketing is thought leadership. And it's to say, right, this is the direction we're moving. Real-time data is a great example, right? I get up and I talk publicly about real-time data quite a lot. And it, it is all quite deliberate to try and guide the industry towards a direction that on one hand, we think it needs to go, you know, the, the philanthropic answer, but also brutally because it's how we'll make money in the long run. Yeah, you have to prepare that. So you both have, you know, thought leaders. It's a key part of, I think, your business development that you have to lead from yeah. the middle of the industry, from the service provider part. You can't just wait for the industry to uh, drive itself. And a, a challenge for this industry, I think, and probably in contrast to, say, oil and gas, is that that concept of service providers as thought leaders is pretty new. We're mostly considered as, as dirty, grubby people trying to make money by selling used cars, right? You know, I still have trouble getting up and talking at reasonably academic conferences because people think that I'm just going to push product. I've got a PhD, for God's sake. You're lucky, no, you're, a doc- you're, lucky you're a doctor. should try yeah, it if you're not. Exactly. So how, that's a real shift in perception for the industry that we are legitimately trying to drive change. I'm not going to pretend it's not to make money, but it doesn't mean we're not trying to do it. But isn't that somewhere that we could look towards? I mean, universities are getting less relevant, the industry is getting tighter and tighter in its focus, the rise of the middle, isn't that where thought leadership needs to come from? At the moment, there is a perception that you're grubby little people. Isn't that where leadership has to come from? Yeah, and I think more of it does than people realise even now. I have, you know, we have six or seven PhDs on staff. That's not unusual, right? Mm -hmm. I think people aren't looking at what's under their noses to some extent. I mean, if you look at other industries, this is inevitable. Schlumberger would up. be an analogy for oil and gas, right? Yeah, yeah. They, they have driven most of the technology adoption and introduction in that industry. Halliburton as their peer, you know, that that's their model. We're a long way from that. I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think the way it's going to go is that the the service providers of that middle tier of the industry is the one that's really going to have to push it because I don't think there's any appetite in companies. When service providers come and pitch products, the reception of it from decision makers is always like, yeah, but how much is it going to cost? Yeah. Or do you know it's really cyclical? It's another one of these places where the cyclical nature of our industry really bites us. You have companies that go through periods of time where they're really pushing innovation and then stop it all. Classic cyclicity, right? You know, this is a point that's come up, I think, a few times that I think it would work better if there's this push-pull mechanism, but you obviously have the industry push and then by the time the service providers react, their priorities change and they they leave. So as a company, it obviously puts you in a precarious position as well that you don't want to sink all these research and development dollars and then not have that return on investment that you really need. Olympus and ourselves are really fortunate that we're bigger, right? Olympus are bigger again. We're big enough that we've, we, we're not cyclical. Mm-hmm. We, we sustained investment all the way through the cycle. That's really hard, though, right? We wouldn't want to belittle how hard that is to do. Do you still get held hostage to the return on investment problem that you have to yeah, have? Yeah, totally, on? right? We, we're a publicly listed company. There has to be some return on that in the medium term if you get, if, yeah, as a publicly listed company, right? Yeah. We've been recently trying to overcome a little bit of the cyclical nature of the sales cycle and the commodity cycle, looking at industries that within our geochem space, cement would be the one that comes to my mind. And cement 
you know, obviously it's a lot less cyclical, the commodity cycle. I mean, that's like areas that we're pushing into to get rid of the that up and down nature of sales. See, here you go, wake up call. We could get overtaken by cement. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty big. Hey, as long as it's uh, non-cyclical, I'm in. <laughs> That's right. I'm in the cement business. Yeah, it's my future. So I want to finish up with a lens of belief that I hear in the industry all the time, which is that um, I'm already good at what I do. I don't need any help. Some of that is a protection. Perhaps I overstate and not honest about my own capabilities. So for anybody out there who's listening who, who, who feels a threat, as most industries do feel a threat from technology. I want to talk positively. How do you make me a better geologist? Um, why would I want to be augmented? Why would I want to see beyond the visible light spectrum? Why, why give me better eyes? You know, I'm sitting here not wearing my glasses in front of the mic here, but why wouldn't you, why wouldn't I want to be better rather than replaced? Isn't there a transition here? And I use the chess analogy, which I put, in the notes, which is about centaurs, that when chess programming uh, suddenly came along and defeated Garry Kasparov, that there was a period in time there, a transition period, where a human plus machine was vastly superior to technology alone. Aren't we going to go through a phase where I'm going to become just better? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think we've already talked about it. You know, it's doctor using eyes and fingers, phrenology style, Doctor with MRI, MRI and analytics is where it ends up. So I think we should all think of it that way. We can't possibly, we can all be better having data at our disposal. It's, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't really get, I'm going to confess, how you have a logical argument that says you can't be better if you've got data at your disposal. How do you have, how do you have that conversation? No, I'm definitely better with just the bare minimum that my eyes can give me. Really? And, and wet cam. And wet cam three months later, if I'm lucky. Each one of these grey hairs is <laughs> just one deposit that I've looked at around the world. People are just scared that the value they've brought is not the same as the value they will bring. Yeah, I think that's more to the point that they think, that they worry about the replacement thing right from the start. You know, that they go, someone's going to think they don't need me because they can look at chromium, titanium and vanadium concentrations and do it all that way. That's about that ownership piece, right? If you think that, it will happen. If you think, no way, I'm going to get ahead of the curve, I'm going to use the technology, surely you win. Surely you win. As you can hear, I'm not very good at being tolerant necessarily of this idea that we ignore it and hope it goes away. The point that Steve made is right. I think it's the incorrect assumption of where that equation sits. I think, you know, if you look at technology and you think it's going to replace you wholly, I think you've completely misunderstood what's, what it's going to do. But if you look at technology and go, is it going to replace the repetitive, non-cognitive tasks that I do? Then I think that then you will realize that your value will lie in the non-repetitive, like really cognitive tasks that you'll have to do. And so that's something right. that you could probably focus on. I think that's a really in. good point, right? It's like, why as a geologist would you want to do the crappy tasks about Excel data kludging and that's things right. like that if you could get a computer to do it for you so you could do the more interesting bits? I think there's a brutal reality we might have to face it. That does mean less geologists have a job, but the ones that have a job 
have got a better job. Yeah, or there'll be different types of geologists as well. Like maybe you won't be a standard project geoscientist. Maybe there'll be very few project geoscientists, but there'll be... That's what I mean, right? You know, maybe there'll be more data geoscientists or maybe there'll be more interpretation geoscientists or whatever it is. I think the other thing we have to remember, again, a brutal fact check here is what's our probability of success? It's less than 1%. It would imply that visual observation alone's not doing super well. (laughs) But the statistics are that's how we found most deposits. By surface geochemical analysis. Is that what I just heard you say, Steve? <laughs> of Gossens and stream sediments. Uh, I think that's what I, I mean, heard you say. One of the great fallacies in our industry is what's worked in the past will work in the future. It's the, the whole concept of search space, which we've held on this podcast a number of times, where people just assume the past will lead to the future. Look, I, I want to close there, but we, we ask all our guests a series of questions that I want to ask you both. Tell me an idea that needs to die within the exploration industry. It can be a technology, a concept, behavior, whatever you feel, something that just needs to stop. So my one in my notes is uh, I do it the old way. That'd be my line. What about you, Michelle? That a geologist has to be standing next to a drill rig to add value. And what about something that's essential that we maintain from our past? We live in a world of people, mate, and that's... When I listened to Mark Bennett in your initial episodes, that was his ongoing theme, people, people skills. Yeah, machines are coming, AI is coming, it's all coming. It's here, it's now, it's going to happen in our lifetime, it's happening now, but people are still going to be here. So shouldn't we go through a period of just wonderment that we're going to become augmentedly better for the first time in history, we've got petrography, we're beyond petrography, we now have hyperspectral. There's always been technology. But now there is, there's just the promise of an explosion of extra skills that you don't currently have. I mean, we're at that tipping point. That's just why it's so much hesitancy in, the, in businesses to adopt it because we're at that, the very early stages of it. And it's going to happen no matter what, as we've said today, right? I mean, and that's why everyone's worried about it. What's going to happen to my job? What's going to happen to me? But, you know happening no matter what we do sitting here in this room or not and you know we have to accept it and maybe more modern because we've seen it happen multiple times in history maybe hopefully we accept it faster and the change is happening more quickly which i think we're seeing at the moment but people make that change you and i make that decision not a machine what do you think we need to keep from the past I think it's the the romance of exploration geology as i said i think people have taken it on in the past, we say, because of campfires and spam. But I think really it's because we're people who really love geology and understanding how the earth works. We will always need people with that passion to make this work, no matter what technology we use to help us. So, you know, one of the stories that I like to tell is that um, geologists don't actually like rocks. They like the stories they tell and that we're actually storytellers and that that part won't change. Hmm. Um, we should tell you, better stories. We'll right? tell better stories and we'll craft those stories. We'll always be storytellers. Um, we, we never cared about the exact density of a rock. We cared about the story that it told. When we saw Carlsbad twinning, we were bored. We were interested in what that meant. It's never, ever been about, for the non-geologists, of course, of course, rock lickers, whatever they, they like, but we've never, ever been fixated on the rock. We've been fixated on the story. 
Yeah, we've always gotten unnecessarily excited about finding 0.4% nickel because we think that means that the big discovery is around the corner. That shouldn't die. We'll finish up with optimism versus pessimism. Is our industry in decline? Well, I think it's a little bit down at the moment, but the comment I always say, I was at a, I'm a shareholder in a company and there was uh, the, I didn't know I was talking to the, the major cornerstone investor and I didn't know that, the broker introduced me to him at a shareholder meeting and he, the shares aren't doing that well and I didn't know who I was talking to and he's like, oh, what should I do and with my shares and I'm like, well, you've got to hang in for the long run because I'm in there. I mean, it's going to come back. It's copper. I'm big on copper. That is yeah, perfect all, sunk all, cost all, fallacy yeah. right there. <laughs> all, all, all I said to him is, like, we're standing in a high-rise in Melbourne, and I said, I said, look around you. I mean, without mineral exploration, there's nothing. You look around this room, there's nothing that we have in this room that doesn't come from the ground, that doesn't come from farming the ground, the wood, the metal, the plastic, the glass. Everything comes to the ground. I mean, we to survive... We have to keep finding this stuff. Yeah, I think so, that's the tricky I thing. Mean, we can't be into. We can't not right. keep finding it. If we we, we don't, might be, and we're, we are. I mean, how do you fund the age of technology without any of the metals right. that actually I mean, run it? So it just means I think I think maybe the question you're really asking, Steve, is our current definition of exploration or our current paradigm is that in decline? Yeah, is it going to get replaced? Has to be. We have to find metals to fund the future. How are we going to do it? And do we get to control that or does somebody else? Yeah, so to me, that's a good point. It's the thing that I think that bothers me is not that we're in decline, but that this industry is ripe for disruption. If it wasn't so cyclical, I think it would have been done by now. We're just crying out for fundamental change. Yeah, completely. I think if you're the big beast in this industry and you think you don't have any competition coming... Yeah, if I'm Apple or Google, why wouldn't I want to control the full value chain at some point? And arguably, they will, they could come up with a better way of doing it, and we, we're doing it right now. So I'll give you a good example. If the promise of uh, electric vehicles is, re- is real, then uh, who wouldn't want to control the whole value chain if you're an EV yeah, producer? Yeah. I mean, I made this comment. Like, I think uh, there was some press conference I was looking at where Elon Musk was asked the question about why aren't you contacting mining companies? And he said, because... He doesn't think they're very good. So, <laughs> right, so I mean, it's a, right. oh, the stab oh. me through the heart. I genuinely think it's only a matter of time before there will be disruption in the way the current industry is set up. So, if you were in charge of a of a major, would you be internally looking at major change, or was the message that it's too hard to implement? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the real challenge is they've got to get funding from the market as well. And every time they go to build a new mine, they've got to go and get money from the market or a bank. They find that hard to do if they say they're going to do things differently, right? So there's some quite fundamental problems here that cause our lack of innovation. So they have to balance that out. But, you know, I I go to a lot of um, innovation conferences and they they talk about it. they talk. They have been talking about it for a long time. My observation in the last year is more and more of them are actually doing it. They're doing it in the mining space more than the exploration space, but that will change, I think. So you do think there's a change in sentiment on how they? I think there is. I do. Yeah. 
It's well, slow. As we talked about, we're, we're laggards, we're slow, but it is happening. But there is a good point in that this is probably something we, we could explore more as well is that, you know, like, are we a laggard because of the, the financial setup that we have? And I think that's probably true. I don't think financiers really want you, like, you know, they want the line and length kind of do what's been like proven in the past. Yeah, but the don't stock market Dang, wants yeah. instant returns on exploration projects. That there's a mismatch with between the financiers and these investors who want returns one, two years, and a project takes 10, 15 years yeah, past if you're right. onto something good. Well, think about the flip side. What if it only does take one to two years, but the answer's negative? That degree of churn, we are not structurally set up for as an investment nah, community, no right? So yeah. these are some of the really big things that affect things like real-time data and real-time decision-making. They're big things. Look, let's uh, wrap it up there. I want to thank Michelle and Marcus for coming on the podcast. Uh, thank you for sharing your time and your insights with us. Thanks, Steve. I'm Ed. Thank you, guys. No worries. Thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah, thanks both of you. Exploration Radio is brought to you by Steve and the Mart. Our producer and all-round go-to guy is Dan Hershowitz. This podcast is recorded at the Perth Music House. If you'd like to know more about Exploration Radio, check us out on explorationradio.com. Or you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And as always, if you like this podcast, please review us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Until next time, let's keep exploring. Exploration Radio.